Um, some of y'all know that in the back of the Bible that my parents gave me on Christmas of 1989, which I still have and use daily, um, I have written a list of all the people that God has used to disciple me in my relationship with the Lord Jesus. And through the season of Lent, I've taken on the spiritual exercise of also making a list of names of all the people that I've hurt and all the people that have hurt me and how that has played a significant role in God developing my character and my Christ-likeness for his glory and for the sake and benefit of others. And I've been reflecting in this uh, journey toward Easter. I've been reflecting um, on this. When I hurt somebody, what is it that I should do for them? When someone hurts me, how is it that I should respond to them? Conflict is so hard, isn't it? Ugh. Do you know why conflict is so hard? Conflict is hard because God created us for shalom. Uh, shalom in the Hebrew means wholeness, completeness, right relationship with God, right relationship with ourselves, right relationship with one another. You and I were never meant to experience enmity. We were created to experience shalom. Who are you out of shalom with right now? It happens. We're created for shalom, and yet life is filled with Genesis 3 moments. That's what I call them. We think and do and say things that hurt. And then rather than admit our fault, we hide from it. We hide from it because we're afraid of being seen for who we truly are. And rather than take responsibility, we point out someone else's fault. We criticize them and we blame them because we're afraid of being rejected for whatever it is that we've done. Our guilt and our shame of being out of shalom leads to fear. And those Genesis 3 moments happen all too often in our lives. One of my favorite Anglican theologians says it this way. Fear is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate, and hate leads to suffering. Can we, can we claim Yoda as an Anglican theologian? Uh, this morning we wrap up our message series on Joseph looking at fear and anger and hate and suffering and how it shatters Shalom, and yet how the purposes of the Lord prevail and how Shalom is restored. So I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 50 in your blue Bible. That is on page 44, last page in the book of Genesis, page 44 in your blue Bible. 
Joseph's brothers are afraid. They're afraid. Look at verses 15 through 17. When Joseph's brothers come to Egypt to buy food and Joseph at last reveals himself to them, they're afraid. As Jonathan read, their father's now dead. He can't protect them any longer. And the brothers are afraid that Joseph's going to take revenge against them. Their hearts are so messed up from the wrong they'd done to Joseph so many years before, selling their own brother into slavery. In verse 15, we see how fear feeds upon them. What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did him? They wonder. Have you ever hurt somebody? and then feared their rejection, their retribution? The brothers' fear intoxicates them, and it leads them to manipulation. It leads them to lies. They're so afraid that Joseph is going to kill them, which technically he has the legal right to do, that they fabricate a story. They make up a lie. They tell Joseph that their father told them to tell him, forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. This is like elementary school level panic. Look what happens. How does Joseph respond? Joseph wept. Let that sink in for a moment. Joseph wept. And then in what appears to be a last act of desperation, the brothers respond to his emotion by bowing down before Joseph and saying, oh, we're your slaves. Why do you think Joseph wept? Maybe because of his brother's hate. Maybe it's the betrayal of being sold into slavery. Maybe he wept because despite his integrity and hard work as a slave, He was manipulated and falsely accused and thrown into prison by an adulterous woman. Maybe it's because he was abandoned by his friend, the cupbearer, who promised to help him but then forgot him. Maybe Joseph wept because this is the culmination of his healing. Because this is the culmination of of his calling. In this moment, as the second most powerful man in the world, with his brothers kneeling down before him, the two dreams that God gave Joseph in his youth are fulfilled. In this moment, they come true. Relationships are hard. 
conflict is hard. I think and do and say things that hurt people. People think and do and say things that hurt me. Last year, I took a class at Christ Healing Center, now called One. And Casey Harris mentioned uh, a book called Journey to Freedom. It's by a guy named Scott Rial. And I was uh, really struggling with some resentment at the time. And during um, this class, I also went through the Journey to Freedom workbook uh, in my time of personal devotion. And at one point, I wrote this. I looked back in my journal, and I found this. Resentment is what happens when we try to avoid feeling hurt. It deflects our focus away from our internal pain and places it upon someone or something else. Hurt most often comes in relationship. So God invites us to be vulnerable with him about our hurt so that he can heal our hearts and redeem our pain. God has the desire and ability to forgive us and heal us. And then for us to participate with him in the forgiveness and healing process of others. Who do you need to forgive? Who do you need to receive forgiveness from? What would happen if in that relationship you were restored to shalom. Look at verses 19 through 21. Joseph responds with astonishing grace. Y'all, this is how shalom is restored, right here. Four things. First, Joseph doesn't hide from his brothers. He reveals himself to them. This is the opposite of Genesis 3. The opposite of what Adam and Eve do. Secondly, Joseph doesn't deny or minimize the sin. He acknowledges it. He doesn't say, oh, I know you didn't mean it. Or, it's okay, don't worry about it. Or, it doesn't matter. The brothers say, we did evil against you, and Joseph adds, and you meant it. The brothers confess their sin, and Joseph acknowledges their confession. They agree that true evil was done, it was wrong, and it was hurtful, and it crushed their hearts and displaced their shalom. Restoring shalom gets even more challenging, but Joseph models it so well. Look at the third thing that he does. Joseph doesn't criticize or blame. He forgives. In one of the most profound and powerful moments in all of Scripture, Joseph fully forgives the one's who wounded him the most. He says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, 
the saving of many lives, so don't be afraid. Joseph knows God. He knows the grace of God. And so like God, Joseph extends grace to those who hurt him. And fourth, Joseph doesn't punish his brothers. He begins to demonstrate his love toward them. He doesn't berate them. He blesses them. He doesn't repay evil with evil, but overcomes evil with gentleness and kindness. And with the measure that he's received comfort from God, Joseph now comforts his brothers, saying, I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to provide for you and for your children. It's why Jacob gives Joseph the coat. Of all of his sons, Jacob believed that Joseph would carry out God's purpose to gather a people to represent him to the nations until the fulfillment of the promised Messiah foretold in Genesis 3.15. And Joseph does. He hears God. He obeys God. And although it was really difficult, he lived into his calling, faithfully and fruitfully. And he restores his family to Shalom with God and with one another. What a moment. What a moment. It's been said um, by many people that the life of Joseph points to the life of Jesus. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus was the father's favorite, sent from home to become a servant, innocent of any wrongdoing, and yet oppressed and afflicted. He was unjustly arrested, tried, and convicted, hated by the very ones who should have loved him. And yet from all the evil brings forth the greatest good, the salvation of the world. God responds to our brokenness. God responds to our sin with grace. Y'all, this is good news. If, if, you're not, if you're not feeling this well up in your soul, keep listening. Hear the gospel. First, God reveals himself to us. Our sin doesn't keep him from us. He doesn't abandon us or reject us. He pursues us because he wants us to know him. He wants us to be reconciled with him. He wants us to be restored to shalom with him and with one another. The word of God became flesh and made 
his dwelling among us, and we've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. This is good news. God doesn't deny or minimize the reality of sin. He acknowledges it and the harm that it causes. And he does something about it, something that we can't do in and of ourselves. He does for us on our behalf. This is really important. Sin isn't about breaking some abstract set of rules. Sin is about breaking shalom with God and shalom with one another. And because God loves us, he confronts us with the ways that we break shalom. God doesn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And whoever believes in him is not condemned. Third, God doesn't give us what our sin deserves. God forgives us. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is grace. You know what that means? That means that I don't have to be afraid of what's in my heart. And I don't have to fear being found out and known because there's nothing in me that could ever be exposed that hasn't already been covered by the sacrificial, life-giving, forgiving blood of Jesus. I don't have to be afraid. The love of God casts out my fear. Fear has to do with punishment. The love of God has to do with reconciliation and restoration of shalom. Hallelujah. I know I'm not supposed to say that till Sunday. Can't help it. <laughs> Fourth, God, God doesn't punish us. God provides for us. For our physical, emotional, and spiritual shalom. You remember what Paul says to Titus? Wasn't that long ago. Titus 3 three through six. At one time, we too were foolish and disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But, I love the buts of the Bible. But, when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. This is good news. Literally, we cannot live without it. God restores shalom through the cross of Christ. He imparts shalom through the resurrection of Christ. And that means that your sins are really forgiven. 
nailed to the cross of Christ and buried in the depths of his love for you. And God's promise for your shalom is sure and certain and cannot be undone regardless of your behavior. That's the gospel. That is good news. A few years ago, I went through a reconciliation process with three members of Grace who really hurt me and who I hurt. And in preparation for that reconciliation, uh, I read this book called The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. It's one of my top ten favorite books. Um, There are about four books in my life that I've read that the Lord actually moved me to tears when I read them. This is one of them. Um, I love this book because of how biblical and practical and helpful it's been to me. And one of the best parts is the four G's of peacemaking or shalom bearing, as it were. And I don't claim to be an expert on this, but I want to be. I'm trying to be. These four G's are so helpful to me as I seek to humbly live into and practice what Jesus does for me and invites me to live for his sake and for the sake of others. Four G's. This is the pattern of God's forgiveness for us, and it's the pattern of how we love one another by forgiving one another as Christ loved and forgave us. The first G is to glorify God, to glorify God in the midst of conflict by trusting him, obeying him, and imitating him, no matter what the circumstances are or how difficult it might be. We can ask ourselves this question continually. Lord, how can I please and honor you in this situation, in this relationship? Glorifying God. Secondly, get the log out of your own eye. This one's tougher, at least for me. And I found that there are about three ways that are helpful for getting the log out of our own eye. First, asking whether or not we have had a critical or a negative or an overly sensitive attitude that's led to unnecessary conflict. Second, because we're so often blind to our own wounding, we probably need an honest friend or a professional counselor to help us take an objective look at our contribution to the conflict. And finally, and I think this is the most important aspect of getting the log out of our own eye, finally it's to take the time to discover the root wound that's causing our unhealthy, unhelpful 
behavior. Glorify God. Get the log out of your eye. Third, gently restore. I don't always do this well. Sometimes my anger gets out in front of me. But Galatians 6.1 says, If someone is caught in sin, you who are spiritual should restore them gently. Our attitude is meant to be like Jesus, one of gentleness rather than anger. And our purpose should be like Jesus, to restore shalom, not to criticize or condemn, to help, to save. Glorify God, get the log out of your eye, gently restore, and finally, go and be reconciled. Go be reconciled. Instead of letting things go, go and be reconciled. Instead of allowing relationships to wither, we're called to forgive one another as we have been forgiven, to bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances we may have have against one another, to forgive as the Lord has forgiven us. It means imitating God by actively pursuing genuine peace and real reconciliation. We don't return evil with evil. We overcome evil with good. We pray for those who harm us. We control our tongue. We refuse to gossip. We give the benefit of the doubt. We protect the reputation of our fellow believers. And no matter how tough, how difficult, we keep doing what is right. I've come to discover that it really is possible to show extraordinary, Christ-centered, gospel-driven kindness to people who have really forfeited any claim of my affection because of what they've done to me. I can love as Christ loved me, whether that person recognizes their sin and repents of it or not. I can love them, but I can't do this in my own power. But as Blake Coffey reminded us a couple of weeks ago at our Lenten lunch, Christ in me can do it toward Christ in you, Christ in someone else. That is one of the most beautiful parts of the hope of glory, of Christ in us. So what if? What if we really loved one another as Christ loved us? How would shalom fill your heart? How would shalom fill your heart and overflow into your relationships? How would shalom infect this church, and overflow into the lives of our classmates and coworkers and neighbors and friends. Relationships 
are hard. Conflict is difficult because we were created for shalom. You may have been deeply hurt and damaged by the sin of your parents or your siblings or maybe even your spouse. But that brokenness does not define you. The wounds you've suffered are real and deep and they may cause difficulties in your relationships. But if anything, the story of Joseph shows us that God can transform the effects of sin and brokenness and fear and anger and resentment and hate and turn them into the opportunity for blessing and peace. God not only has the desire and the ability to redeem our pain, God wants to use the trauma of our experiences for profound good in our life and in the lives of those around us. Wounded people wound people, healed people heal people. So God redeems our pain because he loves us, but he also redeems our pain to give us a healing ministry so that he can love and forgive others through us. In his book, The Wounded Healer, Henry Nouwen says it this way. As long as our wounds are open and bleeding, we scare others away. But after someone has carefully tended to our wounds. They no longer frighten us or others. When we experience the healing presence of God through another person, we can discover our own gifts of healing. And then our wounds allow us to enter into a deep solidarity with our wounded brothers and sisters. Isn't that beautiful? I want to invite the worship team to come forward and just conclude with this. Conflict is hard because God created us for shalom. Wholeness, completeness, a right relationship with him, with ourselves, and with one another. And so as we come to the Lord, around the table, through the bread and the wine this morning. Hear this. None of your brokenness, hiding, denying, blaming, anger, resentment, or suffering can stop the love of God. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sin and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit and the restoration of shalom. There is nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. God is advancing his shalom in the world, in this church, in our hearts, and in every sphere of influence that the Lord has placed us. We've been restored to shalom with God and with one another in Christ, and we've been made ambassadors of shalom, ministers of shalom with Christ. This is the heart of and the mission 
of our creator. So whatever evil, whatever difficult circumstance, God's working for the good because he loves you. And you are called according to his purposes. It may not be easy. It may not be quick. But the Lord will never leave you or forsake you. He's going to see you through. He's going to hold you up and use your pain and your suffering not only for your good, but for the good of of many. For his glory and for your joy. He's going to do it in Jesus' name.